Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Welcome to the channel, and thanks so much for joining me today. I just finished talking with Denise Ho about her new book, Curating Revolution, Politics on Display in Mao's China. This came out in 2018 with Cambridge University Press. Uh, This is a book that's going to be of special interest to anybody who is interested in uh, modern China and Maoist China in particular, anyone who's interested in the histories of objects and material culture and or histories of and practices of display, exhibition, museum history, curation history. So there's a lot going on here in the book um, that's rooted in a very particular context of mostly but not always Shanghai and Mao period China. But there's also a lot to take from the book if you don't consider yourself deeply interested in Chinese history, but are more generally interested in the interplay between museums, display, exhibition, and larger political, social, and cultural um, forces that infuse them. Now, anyone listening to this is probably not going to be surprised if I make this statement or buy this statement, museums are not neutral spaces, right? There's no such thing as an objective presentation of an object, of the relationships between objects, or of history, at all. Everything um, is produced from a particular perspective. And so this book really takes us into a context where we can see the texture of that happening. We can see how um, different kinds of exhibitionary spaces from historic sites to museums to kind of um, temporary exhibitions um, of all sorts are created and transformed in the context of various kinds of political and social and cultural upheaval. And even though the bulk of the material in the book is focused on the Mao period, the Mao era, and you'll hear us talk about what that means, there's also significant attention um, throughout the book on the ways that cultures of exhibition and that some of these uh, particular sites and objects have transformed in China today. Okay, so there's a lot there. Um, I just want to say it's a great book. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you have a chance to read it. And thank you so much for joining me and for your support of the channel and for listening right now. So I hope you enjoy. Um, And with that, let's get to it. I'm here today to talk with Denise Ho about her new book, Curating Revolution. Welcome to the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, Denise. Thanks so much for making time to be with me today. Thanks for having me, Carla. So this is a really exciting book, um, and we'll talk about the reasons why, but let's sort of talk a little bit first about um, what brought you to the field and to the topic. Denise, how did you start working on the history of modern China and why this particular period um, of Chinese history specifically? A great question. I started becoming interested in China as an undergraduate. I took Chinese uh, from year one as a sophomore, and I had the chance to study abroad in Beijing. And after graduation, I uh, spent two years teaching for the Yale China Association 
at a junior high and high school in Changsha in Hunan province. And that was really when I started to think about uh, the lives of the people who uh, were around me, the other teachers, the people in the university administration. And I think that's what brought me to the study and interest in the recent Chinese past. Fabulous. So the book that we're talking about today looks very closely at the culture of exhibition of China's Mao era. And for listeners who don't know when around when that was, um, the book traces from about 1949 to 1976. But um, most of the chapters look at what happens afterwards as well. Mm-hmm. During the Mao years, or China's socialist period, in the words of the book, exhibitions both reflected and made revolution. And the book argues that curating revolution taught people how to take part in revolution. So we'll talk about all this stuff in a moment, but can you say a little bit about what brought you to this particular focus for your research? I think there are two elements. Uh, One of them is the aha moment in the archive, um, and the other is a a longer term um, kind of interest in cultivation. So I was originally interested in the preservation of historic sites. I was interested in urban planning. I had taken a class at the design school at Harvard about uh, modern Chinese cities and urbanism. Uh, So originally, I was really interested in the preservation of the built environment. And uh, when I spent time in the archive, I realized that I was able to find more rich material around um, Wu around cultural relics as a much broader category. And there was more on, uh, on, on museums and uh, uh, objects. Uh, so I kind of went from the preservation of uh, sites to the preservation of things. So that's kind of the intellectual trajectory. Um, and then I had uh, the aha moment in the archive comes from a visit I made uh, to the Shanghai Municipal Archive uh, in the year before my dissertation prospectus year. And just uh, to see what would happen, I put the um, search terms for Wu again, um, cultural object or cultural thing, um, into the uh, archive catalog. And what came out as one of the first uh, f- uh, files was uh documents from the Shanghai Bureau of Culture from 1966 and 1967. And these were telegrams and documents uh, and reports about what local cultural officials were doing to try to preserve cultural relics at the beginning of the Cultural Revolution. And we usually think about the uh, beginning of the Cultural Revolution as a moment of wholesale destruction of Red Guards attacking the four olds, these objects that represented um, old culture and old customs and old habits. And so to me, these documents really piqued my interest because I had never really thought about what it would have been like to have been working in a, in a museum or in the cultural bureaucracy at that moment uh, to respond to the attack on the four olds. So that's the kind of turning point in the, in the archive. Awesome. Now, the transition from um, the research to its um, manifestation in a dissertation and then to the book that we have, um, there were some transformations along the way, right? So can you talk a little bit about that transformation from dissertation to book? Um, were there any major changes in the structure or the nature of the project or in how you were conceptualizing it? It, It's interesting that you ask that uh, 
because I, I'm often talking to to graduate students about dissertations to the book. And of course, the ideal is to write a dissertation that can map pretty well onto the book. But uh, in my case, it, it wasn't that way. Uh, really, only the first and last chapters, the, the chapter on the first party Congress site and the Shanghai Museum, come from the uh, the dissertation manuscript. I think what happened in between was that uh, in working on the dissertation, I was really interested in sorting out for myself what was the bureaucracy of culture and what was the definition of, of Wan Wu and how did that change over time? How did people's perceptions of cultural relics change over time? Between the, um, uh, the dissertation and the book, I really reframed it in terms of thinking about the exhibitions themselves and the method of display. And so I think of the book as much more of a cultural history, uh, particularly of political culture in the Maoist period. Mm -hmm. uh, so in, in my mind, it, it, it underwent a, a fairly large transformation. Okay, great. Thanks. Should, should we dive in? Sure. Let's dive in. Okay, so the introduction begins thus. In Mao's China, to curate revolution was to make it material. The book argues, and it, it goes on here to argue, uh, for a capacious understanding of what constituted curation in Mao's China. So let's start there, Denise. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by curation here and what's important for us to understand about your concept of curation to kind of um, set us up for what's going to come later in the book? Great. I think that's a, that's a good way to start with the, with the book's title and Curating Revolution. It's outlined more in the conclusion rather than the, than the introduction, but I try to, to think about a, a more expansive notion of what we think of as curating. So I, I talk about multiple steps. Um, collection, uh, you can't have a an exhibition until you have objects uh, to put on display. Uh, so collection is one part of the process. Um, narratives, so not just the narratives that you might see in text on walls, but the narratives uh, that are uh, recited or given by docents. Um, as a second part of uh, curation. And then finally, uh, one of the ways I think about how this book is different in thinking about exhibitions is the ways in which uh, exhibitions in the Mao period were really forms of ritual space um, where people were encouraged to tell stories, to uh, recite slogans, um, to interact with uh with the objects uh, in a uh, in a much more active way, something that I call participatory propaganda, and I think this more expansive way of thinking about uh, the word curating is reflected in the documents in the words of the people themselves. So, for example, in putting on a factory exhibition, I found some documents from the 1960s, and the message was clearly that just putting up the uh, materials on display or decorating the walls, this is just half of the work. Uh, the other part of the work is really the mass work of, uh, of um, exhibition, which is to teach a lesson and then to uh, do your best to ascertain that the, the lesson has been imbibed. Excellent. Thank you so much. And we'll talk about a lot of this actually 
um, I think, over the course of the conversation to come. So chapter one begins with the story of the search for the site of the 1921 First Community Party Congress. The site, ha this is actually a really interesting story, right? It's not at all the kind of straightforward thing um, that listeners might think, right? Oh, you just identify the site. And one of the things that this chapter shows really beautifully is there's no such thing here as just identify the site, right? It's a really complicated process, and we'll get into that. So the site had to be located, it had to be authenticated, and then there was some disagreement about like whether the actual meeting was on the first floor or on the like bottom floor or um, whatever. So you take us through this whole process, um, which feels like we're kind of uncovering a mystery in real time, which is really fabulous. And I should say right off the bat, this is a beautifully written book. I just want to assert that. Because Thank you. It's really beautifully written. Um, and you're uh, this just the storytelling in this book is awesome. So, um, but I digress a little bit. Okay, so the chapter considers the site, right, of this party congress as a revolutionary artifact and a museum of revolutionary history. And that's in the words of the book. The goal here, as you show with the site, was to create a kind of definitive and authoritative textbook. But the exhibition was shaped to serve the interests of contemporary politics, and the site cultivated, um, in the words of the book, a founding myth with Mao at the center. Now, this gets us to a notion um, that you introduce here, which is the notion of the red line. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that was and how that shaped what was happening um, at this site? Great. That's a great question. Um, I think the uh, primary meaning, the red line meant a lot of things uh, to the curators of the First Party Congress site. But I think the most important takeaway is that thinking about the red line was to interpret Chinese history according to Mao's own writings. And I think this reflects the ways in which a revolutionary history museum was conceived. Um, it was to follow, um, it was to be like a textbook. So turning the pages of the textbook was like going from one uh, one room in the museum to the other with one room being a different chapter. In this, the Chinese were really following the Soviet model, uh, which arranged its history museums according to uh, Stalin's short course history of the Soviet Union. Um, and so the Chinese did the same using Mao's uh, uh, on new democracy and its layout of Chinese history to interpret Chinese history for the public. So following the red line was really using Mao's uh, thought and his writings uh, to organize Chinese history. Fabulous. And one of the things that becomes really clear in this chapter is that um, what it is to do history in this period was extremely problematic, right? And the chapter illustrates how difficult it was to do history in Mao's China in terms of access to archives, um, etc. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. I, I think it's uh, something that really appeals to the historian as the reader and hopefully the uh, historians among among your listeners, uh, because it really gives us a, a way of thinking about how difficult it was to be a curator or to be a docent in this kind of museum. Uh, we have some contemporary accounts. Uh, Simone Lays, for example, writes about visiting the First Party Congress site during the Cultural Revolution. And in his writings, it sounds like the docents don't know what's going on. Um, and in fact, the docents do know what's going on, uh, but they've been given very strict uh, instructions on what questions they can and can't answer and how they are to answer them. 
Um, and we have that material in the archive. You have lists of uh, questions and you have a list of difficult to answer questions and what the answer should be. Um, so you really get to look behind the scenes at the manufacture and the presentation of history in the Mao period. Um, I think it's also interesting to think about how conscientious those historical actors were in trying to um, to do research, including to to do archival research. Um, and uh, one example might be uh, trying to figure out how important Mao was at the First Party Congress meeting. Um, and the truth was that he wasn't that important, um, but they weren't able to access archives they had heard about. Um, and so instead, they scripted an answer saying that Mao is the representative of the birth of the party on the correct path. Um, and uh, that was the answer that the visitor had to be contented with. Um, so I think this chapter and the example of the First Party Congress site really brings into sharp relief uh, the challenges and conflicts of uh, doing history in the Mao era. Fabulous. And you talked a little bit just now about docent scripts, right? And these are um, a kind of source that you mentioned in the chapter as being um, particularly um, important in shaping your own research process, right? Um, and so one of the things that I really loved about the book as a historian, right? I'm a, I'm a total document source geek. Like I love hearing about that part of the process. And I love the fact that you talked about that so much in the book. Um, so here, in addition to the scripts of the docents, right? Um, there are other kinds of sources that you mention in this chapter um, that seemed really important for the process, right? You talk about oral histories here. Um, you talk about just in general, the museum's archives being important. So I would love it if you could talk a little bit about, um, for you, what were some of the most interesting or exciting or useful um, aspects of the source base here that you were working with? Can I ask, do you mean for this particular chapter or for the book at, at large? Well, either one, really. I mean, it's sort of, um, I think this is something that comes up at the beginning of the book, but there's so many different kinds of sources and archives seem so important for what's happening in this chapter that that's why I'm asking about it now, because it's sort of the chapter raises, right, the issue of historical process and the issue of archives as being fundamental to what it is that we're doing as historians telling a story. So really, um, let's start with the general. Like in general, okay. were there any sources that were particularly cool? I, th I think um, we could divide the for the book into roughly three categories. For example, we have archival material, and then we have oral history, and then we have ephemera. Um, and I'll start with the archives. In, in this chapter, for example, you have docent scripts, and that allows you to see how things change over time, which is uh, really fascinating, especially in the Cultural Revolution, when if you think about um, a script as something that is that can be easily edited, it can be changed um, at some point uh, during, during the history of the First Party Congress site, you have uh, just a, a loudspeaker broadcast um, as a text. Um, so we can see how narratives change over time by looking at these docent scripts. Um, other examples of fascinating material that comes out of the archive, uh, for example, uh, might be things like um, um, the docents in the Red Guard exhibitions, which I write about in chapter five. They actually write about the process of what it was like to go interview people, uh, people who had suffered in the old society, and how to use their stories in their uh, in their narration. Um, these uh, these archival materials uh, function as 
uh, you might think of them as self-criticisms where the docents are, are reviewing their behavior and their activity and thinking about how to do things better. Um, so even though these are written for a particular audience, um, you really get the sense of how theatrical working in a red guard display was because they'll talk about things like how do you um, use your voice? When do you raise your voice and when do you lower your voice? Or um, how do you um, narrate in such a way that you can get the maximum level of emotion out of your um, out of your audience? So that's another example of a docent self-criticisms that really comes out um, uh, it gives you a rich texture to what it would be like to work in a museum. Other examples include, for example, the uh, class education exhibitions. I have, uh, uh, we might call them focus groups, where uh, every every month they would do a summary of the people who had come through uh, the exhibition and how they reacted. So that gives you, if you contrast those archival materials to newspapers, um, you you get a sense that um, that there is a lot going on that's beyond the officially received how people are supposed to see an exhibition and that comes out in the archival materials. I'm happy to talk about oral history and ephemera as well um, if you think that would be a, be appropriate here or yeah, I can talk about it. it more later. Oh, let's start now. Okay. Um, so oral history, you had asked earlier about how things had changed from dissertation to the book. Uh, I really didn't do that much oral history until I got to the to the revision of the dissertation into the book. Um, and here I was really inspired uh, by Barbara Mittler's um, book on the continuous revolution in which she interviews people about their memories of, in particular, um, the uh, model, model plays and other forms of political propaganda. Um, and so I uh, interviewed, um, to get a sense of how people remembered exhibitions, I interviewed a lot of um, ordinary people in Shanghai about what they remembered. Um, but I think the most standout um, oral histories came from people who worked, uh, for example, in the Shanghai Museum. And that would bring us into chapter six, which looks at how Shanghai Museum officials responded during the attack on the Four Olds. Um, in particular, I was able to interview one former curator, she's now retired, um, of paintings called Zhong Yinlan. Um, and her voice was not in archival materials at all, um, but really adds to the richness of that chapter uh, to think about her experience, uh, both responding to Red Guards and then later spending years in the countryside sorting through cultural relics. Um, to be returned to the medium or to re be returned to uh, state channels. Um, so that was the oral history element. And then uh, one other uh, piece that became really important in the revision of the dissertation to the book was the use of ephemera. So some of the exhibitions that I talk about in the book were not supposed to be publicized or, um, or advertised in newspapers. And so the only way we know about them, uh, besides the archival material, is to look at docent handbooks and pamphlets and things like this that you can't find in the archive uh, and seldom uh, can you find them in libraries. Uh, but since they're out in the public, uh, you can buy them on uh, Kung Fu Zewang, which is uh, this used uh, book um, online outlet. And that's one way in which to uh, really fill out the history of uh, museums and exhibitions in the Mao period. 
Thank you so much. Now you talked a little bit about the script as a particular, um, almost as a particular kind of narrative, right? And you talked about the importance of theater here, a kind of theater. And this brings us, I think, really nicely into the next chapter. So chapter two looks closely at a neighborhood called Fangua Lane. This was a neighborhood that was transformed from one of Shanghai's poorest slums to a five so to like five-story concrete apartment blocks of a workers' village. It was named after a legendary pumpkin that grew in the shape of a dragon. And I had to mention that because dragons, obviously, right? I'm like, I'm not gonna not mention the dragon thing. Okay, so it's named after this like dragon-shaped pumpkin. Okay, but as we get into the half turn beyond the dragon, um, the neighborhood, as you show here, becomes a metonym of New China, with its people representing China's working class. It becomes a showcase for visitors and foreign dignitaries and comes to stand for what you call linear progress toward a future of shared prosperity. Now, you show in this chapter that this is accomplished through um, a, a few of the things that you've talked briefly about that we can kind of flesh out here. One of them is a kind of storytelling narrative, the Iku Setian, right? So since this is so important here and it comes up later in the book, can you talk about this particular form of narrative um, and its importance for what was happening here in this um, neighborhood, uh, Fangua Lane? That's, that's a great question. I think to start out, um, we should define uh, uh, Iku Sitian as a form of narrative. People might have heard about Soku to, uh, to accuse the past um, in the land reform period, for example. Um, to Iku, to remember the past, is uh, really a, a storytelling practice that comes out of uh, the late 50s, early 60s. And it's about remembering the past and how bitter the suffering was. And then uh, to Sitian, to think about the sweetness of the present. Um, and so it's uh, this classic way of juxtaposing past and present as a way of lending legitimacy um, and um, creating pride in, in, in new China. So to talk about how bad things were in the old society and old China and how good things are in, in, in new China um, was the point of this, this kind of uh, storytelling narrative. And it's also important to remember as something that is intensely personal um, so individuals are called upon to, to speak their, or remember their own bitterness. Um, and it's also a very public form of, um, of storytelling. So uh, you would do this in a group. Uh, you might do it in front of your work unit or you might do it in, in the family. Um, and so uh, the neighborhood of Fangua Lane becomes a living embodiment of this narrative because it had been the site of one of Shanghai's most notorious slums, and then it became uh, selected as uh, this model, um, a new worker's village in new China. And so it makes material the juxtaposition between old and new. Um, and one of the things that uh, officials in the neighborhood decide to do is to preserve 18 of these old shantytown houses um, and keep them on display in the back of the um, of, of the housing complex so that they could be used to show visitors this is old China and here's new China, these new apartment blocks. Um, and so whether it, you were a, uh, a school child on a field trip uh, coming to visit or if you were a foreign dignitary being shown uh, a, a, um, an exemplar of new China, you would tour these sites and then actually go and visit the homes um, of the residents of Fangua Lane. 
Fabulous. So you call this um, a living exhibition, right, on the site where the residents and visitors are becoming part of the scene. And you talk about this um, exhibition as a kind of participatory propaganda. Um, so that's a phrase that's already come up in our conversation. And the notion of participatory propaganda um, recurs throughout the book. So is there anything that you wanted to say about that um, to kind of underscore its importance for listeners here? I think uh, we could... I think it um, the relevance here is to think about what it was like to visit um, in a group. So if you imagine school children uh, coming to visit Fangwa Lane, for example, they would go and see the old houses and they would listen to um, an old grandfather telling revolutionary stories or telling about his life in the past. Um, so one thing that I often ask myself uh, in putting this book together is how are exhibitions different from other kinds of propaganda? Um, and one thing that's different is that you are consuming the, um, the display with other people. So it's not just one person uh, visiting a museum on their own as we might imagine it today. But in this case, um, for the children, they are with their classmates, with their teacher. Um, they might shout slogans. They might eat a bitterness meal. Um, this uh, uh, example of, of eating uh, poor or coarse food from um, from the old society. Um, so it's intensely ritualistic, and it's something that is uh, that puts visitors into a spectacle. And so uh, this is one of the things um, that I really love about the chapter is that you describe this, right? So it's um, the chapter talks about um, based on the sources and some of the interviews that were used to get at how this exhibition was experienced and how it was received. Um, the chapter does bring us into descriptions of like what some of those meals were like, you know, I liked some yeah. people are just like, actually, it wasn't so bad if you just put a lot of oil in it, you know, and so there's a really wonderful way, I think, and this is one of the reasons I wanted to make sure we got to this notion of like participation, right, in the way that that shapes the experience. Um, you're also allowing the reader to participate in what's going on here by integrating these sources that really take us into the texture of the lived experience here so that we're not just reading about, um, right, the kind of official uh, records that give one perspective. So in any case, I just wanted to mark that there's a really beautiful way that the book and this chapter is exemplary of this, um, creates a kind of participatory experience for us as readers by integrating the kinds of sources um, that you've brought to bear here. So I really love that. Oh, thank you. Um, and you mentioned school children, which is great because this also brings us into the next chapter, right? Um, chapter three looks at efforts to propagandize against um, superstitious, right? I'm, I'm using oral quotes there because that's, you know, that's the, um, the kind of term of art that we're using here. So to propagandize against superstitious beliefs that didn't suit the new society. Shanghai officials attempted to use display as a kind of technology to mold faith and to encourage people to love science and to cast aside superstition. So the chapter focuses in particular on the Love Science and Eliminate Superstition exhibition, um, which is a small local exhibition designed for the communist young pioneers in the 1960s. This is such a fascinating chapter. Um, 
can you to kind of bring us in, Denise? Can you give us a kind of brief intro to uh, the kinds of things that were exhibited in this um, exhibition? Um, like, what kinds of things would participants find there? And for you, what's most exciting about what's happening here? Okay, I'll I'll start with the kinds of things that are exhibited. Um, in some cases, there were experiments. Um, uh, put on display. Uh, the most memorable one was a, a frog that had just been killed. And the idea was that you could stimulate the frog to move its limbs. And this would be a way to demonstrate to, to children that there's no such thing as ghosts, because here you have this biological process. This is why the frog is still able to move its limbs. So this is not because the, that there's a ghost frog. Um, and uh, the, the way the exhibit was set up was a, a list of questions. Um, and you can tell that these are the kinds of questions that children ask, um, you know, are there ghosts? Um, uh, why does dog bark in the night? Or why do plants curl up when you touch them? Uh, so you really had the sense of um, students uh, or children asking questions that adults wouldn't. Um, and uh, then, then you have the teachers grappling with how to answer those questions and how to answer those questions in a way that uh, replaces a scientific understanding or replaces a superstitious belief with a scientific understanding. Um, and so for me, this, uh, this case study was a way for me to think about reading exhibitions for the kinds of beliefs that still persisted in the Mao period. So they become kind of a negative example. Um, and especially when we think about the longer trajectory of uh, the revival of religion or the so-called revival of religion after, uh, after the Mao period and the reform period, I think you can see how religious beliefs persisted um, despite uh, oftentimes very severe anti-superstition campaigns. Mm -hmm. Now, even given that, um, and, and I just, we won't have time to talk about this in too much detail, but I just want to mention for listeners um, that we could talk probably for like three hours about all these examples, right? What happens after death? Um, you talk about um, water goblins and like holy water and all these really interesting um, examples and questions and, um, that come up in this chapter. But you also make a point here in this chapter that the exhibition's texts against religion were not successful actually in achieving the aims of the organizers. And you suggest this is for at least a couple of reasons. Like one is it didn't get rid of ideology, right? It substitutes mm -hmm. faith in one thing for faith in another. So instead of um, a faith in uh, or an ideology of superstition, it, it cultivates an ideology of science, right? Science was not treated as a form of questioning here. It was treated as a set of facts or precepts. Um, and that's really important. What's also important here in undermining the success, like relative to the goals of the um, organizers of this particular exhibition, um, is something that importantly brings out something that I think also recurs throughout the book, which is the importance of objects, right? The importance of materials. And you suggest here that because most of this exhibition was in the form of text, not objects, in a way, it was less successful than it could have been. Um, so could you talk maybe about that last point? Um, like, because this is perhaps a way to bring out the significance of material, right, of the objects in um, in this story. I should say that this, uh, this um, 
exhibit itself does not have that many objects. So one of the dilemmas uh, for the official putting on an exhibition is that despite the fact that it's material objects and artifacts that uh, attract the attention of the visitors uh, the best, and visitors often will say, well, you should have more objects. Um, the cheapest way to have an exhibition is to use text, uh, to use pictures, to use photographs. And in fact, uh, there is a whole set of, um, a, a whole genre of, of exhibitions during this period, which are like called hanging poster exhibitions, where uh, the publishing house just creates a bunch of posters and you put the posters up um, as your exhibition. Um, so uh, the, the cheapest exhibition is to use texts. Um, so in, in the case of this, um, in, in the case of this um, anti-superstition exhibition, you don't have uh, that many objects. And as you as you pointed out, it's mostly question, answer, question, answer, question, answer. Um, and students are, are given a text and given a line to repeat um, that this is superstitious, therefore it's not true. Um, there are other examples, and you mentioned the case of holy water, um, where uh, in, in that case, uh, people were coming in. The, this was in the in the countryside outside of Shanghai. People were coming to a fountain that was supposedly um, that had healing powers um, and collecting the water to drink. And uh, propaganda officials tried to set up a, uh, a a microscope to show people how dirty the water was. Um, but uh, people were not not always uh, not always believing of what they saw there either. Um, so um, it's it's important to highlight objects, um, but in fact, in this particular exhibition, there were not not that many objects. It was mostly text, um, and as you say, that may have been one of the things uh, that undermined the success of the exhibition. So as we turn from this chapter to chapters four and five, we turn to two chapters um, that really take us into contexts where the objects are super central, right? Um, mm -hmm. So chapters four and five collectively look at the ways that objects were linked to the class status of individuals and how displays of personal possessions, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about how those personal possessions were acquired, um, how they were displayed, and what happened afterwards, right? But how they were part of a culture of exhibition in the Mao era, and how these exhibitions explicitly served political campaigns. Chapter four looks at Shanghai's class education exhibition. And you've talked a little bit, um, I think you briefly mentioned the kind of socialist education movement that this was part of uh, a little bit earlier in our conversation. But Denise, for listeners who may not be familiar with the Mao era, who may not actually know, um, like what is the socialist education movement that this is part of, um, could you say a little bit about the context within which this fits so that we can kind of understand um, how this exhibition was serving those political aims? Sure. Um, I think what's important to uh, just take a step back and understand is uh, the uh, what we might call a late Maoist ideology of class. Um, so uh, you might think that, for example, the Communist Party comes to power uh, and it uh, nationalizes uh, private businesses. Um, you have the collectivization of agriculture. So the, the things... Uh, by which class was traditionally defined, uh, like property, um, are no longer there. So um, well, how is it that you still have class status um, in the Maoist period? Um, and so what's happening here in the early 1960s is a, 
um, uh, a campaign of ideological education. The socialist education movement is also a campaign against corruption. But I think that the other part of it is to teach people uh, two, uh, two really crucial tenets. One, that you still have class status. Um, and two, that you still need to have class struggle. Uh, and when we think about these in the context of the Cultural Revolution, um, those, those concepts need to be understood by people in order for them to participate in the class struggle and the continuous revolution that is, that is the beginning of the Cultural Revolution. Uh, so that's the context, kind of the ideological background behind all of this. Um, and so what's happening in these exhibitions is the uh, warning uh, that there are still class enemies and they could somehow stage a comeback. Mm-hmm. Um, and the exhibits put individuals on display by showing, uh, oftentimes it's things that they that they own or things that are found in their house. Um, sometimes they're uh, objects like, decadent objects like um, a fur coat, for example, um, or uh, imported food or luxury um, luxury objects that show how this person is longing for the old society when they had this class status. Uh, sometimes they're weapons um, like uh, knives um, or guns or uh, sometimes uh, identity papers from the old, uh, uh, from pre-1949 China. Um, and sometimes they're very personal things like letters and diaries um, that show people somehow longing for the past. Um, And so all of these kinds of objects, uh, which are confiscated from their owners, become object lessons in how there is class in uh, New China after all, and how these classes could be dangerous. Fabulous. So the kinds of objects, um, for example, that we read about in chapter four include, um, just kind of for listeners who may... um, Anyway, for me, <laughs> not for listeners, because I thought this was fabulous, include like the display of clocks to symbolize like capitalist oppression, right? So obviously, as a faculty member at a university, that speaks to me very, very deeply. I'm like, yeah, we shouldn't display my iCal program with my schedule. Um, or, and this is really um, kind of interesting, the display of maps and ledgers, which were secretly saved in case like things changed, right? So you talk about the display of um, people who had, or the display of land deeds and other documents that were secretly kept by class enemies who hadn't reformed, like, right, as a way of kind of displaying um, the danger um, of this, um, of these class issues. Um, Now, chapter five is kind of a pair, right, with this chapter. And you talk about the display of other kinds of objects um, in another context, which is also really interesting. Now, this is a display of an exhibition organized by the Red Guards. So anyone who's read, um, so listeners who may not be familiar with this, but who um, have read Three Body Problem, right? The novel, the Chinese science fiction novel with the opening um, scene that's really powerful with the Red Guards, like this chapter will speak to you. My student, like if I had to teach this in an undergraduate, right? Like this chapter, I would pair this with um, that part of Three Body Problem and I think it would work really well. But okay, Red Guards, really, really interesting context. So this is an exhibition organized by the Red Guards at the East is Red department store. This had been the Yong'an department store on Nanjing Road and it was run by a prominent figure, um, Guo Lin Shuo. 
Do you want to say a little bit about this particular figure and this individual so that we can understand how this space, right, becomes, like, is transformed from uh, this kind of place of power almost to a place where his struggle is put on display? Who is this guy? Sure. Why should we, yeah, what do we need to know about him? So the Guo family is the um, the, the original um, founders of the Yongan department store, one of the four famous founders, um, a four famous department stores rather on on Nanjing Road. And uh, Guo decides to stay um, in China after 1949, and he um, uh, participates in what's called socialist transformation, volunteering to turn the department store over to the state. Um, and what happened in this process is that they would keep the uh, former um, former manager um, on as a um, as an employee in in the new uh, in the new business. So uh, before the Cultural Revolution, Wool was really held up as an example of a, um, a a national capitalist. So you have both good and bad uh, bad capitalists, uh, and the national capitalists are those who stay on who um, uh, turn over their businesses to the state and then uh, share their know-how and resources um, in building new China. And so before this exhibition takes place, before he gets attacked during the Cultural Revolution, he's really held up as a model um, for the the, the person who has seen the light and who is is contributing to the development of the motherland. Um, And so... It, the irony is that he was a propaganda object before, and then he becomes uh, his. The narrative about his life um, is transformed through this Red Guard exhibition that displays his life among others um, as uh, as a negative example, as the class enemy who has refused to reform. And here are examples from his house that show how he's refused to reform. Um, what were some of those examples that were on display? Like, can you bring us a little bit into um, the exhibition for listeners have, who have sure. a chance to read? Yeah. So for Guo himself, um, things like uh, the keys to his house um, were put on display um, and uh, used to show you know, exactly how uh, large his estate was. Uh, they were also things like uh, luxury uh, clothing objects, canned foods. He has a Western kitchen and a Chinese kitchen. Um, photographs of his art of his garden um, with flowers coming from different Western countries uh, were also put on display. Um, so uh, these were, uh, I think, uh, really spectacles for the people who came to see them. Uh, I think the most standout. Um, object from that exhibition comes not from the Guo example, um, but from another individual. And I think really strikes at the heart of uh, how objects were used in these class education exhibitions. And this was a teapot. Mm. Um, In the teapot, there was a false base um, and the base was stuffed with gold bars. Um, So I think you have a number of things on display at once. One, you have the gold bars themselves, and there's this whole trope of gold being displayed. Uh, And the gold was meant to represent the fact that people were saving their resources, whether it was gold or foreign currency, um, in uh, in anticipation that you would have a regime change and that they could come back to power. So you have the gold bars. You also have 
the fact that they're hidden in the teapot. So it's not just the gold bars on display, but their latent uh, power or their potential being hidden um, represents uh, the alleged uh, capitalist desire to have a restoration. And then finally, the, the teapot as an ensemble are displayed along with a narrative that explains the process of the house search, the house search being uh, the Red Guard ransacking of private homes. And that is displayed to show that it's the Red Guards who uh, who found this, and it's the Red Guards who identified class enemies, and therefore the cultural revolution is rightful, it's right to rebel because they were able to find these class enemies. So I think there's a, a lot wrapped up in that particular object. And there's also this really interesting way in which um, some of the objects, when they're displayed, the the value is kind of translated into the equivalent value of like the wages of working people, right? I mean, so that there's like um, a way in which some of these objects, at least as I understand it from like reading this chapter, right, were displayed in a way that encouraged people experiencing this exhibition and experiencing these objects to understand that this isn't just a fur coat. This is a materialization of um, like the wages for like three years of such and such number of people who are just like normal working class people, right? And so there's this way that these the material of these objects is um, kind of made to stand in for the bodies of a lot of other individuals that are kind of... Um, it's just a materialization of class differences and class struggle, I think, in a really powerful way in the way you describe it here. Right. And oh, that, that's very different from other models. So if you look at Soviet museology handbooks that get translated into Chinese, and that, that's what people are using in the 1950s to understand what you do in a museum. In the Soviet case, Class is not displayed in this way. Um, class is displayed in, okay, here are the people who, these are the, uh, this is the means of production and this is who owns them. Uh, in the Chinese case, you really have the, the sense that um, objects or luxury goods, for example, as you, as you mentioned, are enumerated through what they could buy instead. And through that, uh, you really have a very visceral uh, understanding of suffering. Like this fur coat could be, could be sold to um, to pay for workers' rice for X number of years, uh, and that's the way things are 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 presented. Mm-hmm. Great, and the chapter also um, for listeners who are particularly interested in following what happens to the objects, um, it also discusses a little bit what ultimately happened to the objects that were confiscated in these house searches. Right, so I think um, listeners who are particularly engaged by issues of um, circulation, um, that ways of understanding these exhibitions as a kind of inventory. And that aspect of material culture will find a lot of material to work with in chapter five, but also in chapter four. So this moves us to chapter six, right? This is the last body chapter of the uh, book. And this is a chapter that looks at one of China's most prominent art collections, the Shanghai Museum. So to start us off so that we can kind of understand um, the transformations here, Denise, can you talk about what's important about this particular kind of museum? What does this make or what makes this particular site so interesting for this study? Like before, right, all the Wenwu stuff happens. Um, I think we could uh, 
I think there are two important things to, to highlight. One is that the Shanghai Museum, we think of it today as uh, primarily an, an art museum, um, but in the Mao period, it also had exhibitions of revolutionary history. It also had class education exhibitions, um, but art, art, art is primary. Um, your question is about what's special about this institution. And I think um, this also strikes at the heart of, you know, whether these case studies from Shanghai uh, can represent uh, the rest of China. Um, and I think that Shanghai presents a, a unique case um, that uh, that is, you know, that is, that is still important, uh, even if it is exceptional. Um, and that is, you know, how do you get a, a, a great art museum or a great collection of art? You get it because you have a center of wealth that begets a connoisseurship. And so in that way, Shanghai is particular because especially uh, it was not only a wealthy place, but it was also um, with the foreign concessions, a place where collectors from outside of Shanghai fled during uh, during the Second World War with their collections. So it was an especially rich place um, for the building of a museum. Great. So when the Cultural Revolution breaks out with its attack on the Four Olds, Red Guards attack both the museum and also um, Wenwu throughout the city. So Denise, for um, listeners who may not be in Chinese studies, who don't really know what Wenwu are, um, can you say a little bit about what does this mean, right? Like what is this concept in this context? Um, and I ask that because the concept, right, of Wenwu here becomes really important as a sort of question um, shaping what the museum does, right, to, to kind of protect these things in the face of uh, re rebellion or revolution against old thinking or old habits or tradition, right? So what are Wenwu at the start of this and how do they become central in what happens with and at this museum in the um, heat of the Cultural Revolution? Uh, that, that's a great question. I think we could think about Wenwu from a bureaucratic perspective, um, or you can think about it from a number of their different perspectives. Uh, in cultural relics law, one uh, rule, these cultural objects are defined um, very broadly to something that has artistic, um, historical, scientific, um, or revolutionary significance. Um, so it, it's a much broader uh, base of things than we usually think of. Um, so a document um, is a, a cultural relic or a, an ancient tree um, or a site where something once stood. All of these things can fall under the category of, of one rule. Um, for the purposes of this chapter, it's also important to think about um, one rule as having um, two other kinds of subdivisions. One is things that can be moved. Um, so immovable cultural relics, or sorry, movable cultural relics and immovable cultural relics. Um, so there are the immovable ones are things like a temple um, or a historic grave, uh, things that need to be preserved on site. And then movable cultural relics are the kinds of things you could think of in a museum like a vase or a uh, painting that can be picked up and gathered and preserved elsewhere. Um, and then the final thing, uh, the final way of defining one will bureaucratically is to think about the different levels at which um, they are important. So the most rare um, one will are might be called category one uh, one will. Uh, and then the jurisdiction that they fall under uh, depends on how rare and how important they are. So uh, 
a historic site for the city, the First Party Congress site, for example, is a Wanwu for the city of Shanghai. Um, and in order to do anything, if you wanted to modify it, a temple or something like that, you need to get permission uh, of the uh, the jurisdiction or the authority under which it sits, and then also the next level above. So that's kind of the, the bigger framework of thinking about Wanwu, what they are, and who's in charge of them. Awesome. Okay, so in this chapter, um, and we'll only have a little bit of time to talk about it, but it's so striking that I want to mention it. The chapter paints a really striking picture of what employees at the museum did in order to try to preserve these objects throughout the city. And that include l- included like not going home, right, for days at a time, sleeping on the premises, mm-hmm. getting up at all hours, going out to retrieve these objects for safeguarding. Um, and in the end, it received, as you described, this one woo from about 200 families. Okay, so but this is a um, this is a tense notion, right? At the time, given um, what's happening um, in the midst of the Cultural Revolution, so can you talk a little bit about this? How did officials at the museum explain Wenwu in order to try to convince Red Guards that they weren't part of the quote old thinking or old habits that were being attacked, or in other words? Um, and this is one of the major arguments in the chapter, how did the Shanghai Museum revolutionize antiquity? I, I think this really brings us to the, the heart of um, uh, different interpretations of this particular moment. Uh, so I think it's important to um, to to kind of separate this into, into different levels. One, what officials, what the rhetoric was of the time, um, which I call revolutionizing antiquity. Um, then there is the way we might interpret it looking back um, as historians or as observers of China. And then you have the memories of the people who participated uh, in, in the preservation of culture during that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do they think today? And so one of the things I try to untangle by looking at archival um, research is uh, how did people understand what they were doing and and how did they present it in a revolutionary fashion so uh, the argument was that these are part of um, China's uh, historic heritage and Mao himself writes that you can't um, you can't uh, obliterate history you have to assimilate it and take what's best from it uh, and so there was the argument from Mao's writings um, there was the argument that uh, these are the handiworks of the historic laboring masses uh, so these should be um, they should be preserved because they come from labor and then there was the argument that that even if there were aspects of art or of uh, historic cultural things that were to be criticized. You couldn't actually criticize it if you destroyed it. Uh, So there were lots of ways in which uh, uh, local officials were very inventive um, in their defense of cultural relics. Um, I think, so that's that's kind of the rhetoric of the time. I think another way to interpret it is to to think about um, how much of these... uh, materials were or these objects were confiscated uh, by the state um uh, and uh, dean lu um, who wrote a dissertation entirely on the shanghai museum shows uh, how much uh, the shanghai museum's collections actually gained from this uh movement um 
So that's uh, one, one way of analyzing it. Um, another way t- is to think about how um, people remember uh, their participation. Um, Jong Yin Lan, who I quoted or I talked about earlier, um, she, uh, I, I think there's a strong sense that for workers in the Shanghai Museum, that this was part of their job, their professional identity to preserve uh, cultural objects. Um, and they feel very proud about what they were able to do um, to to conserve heritage. Um, even people who worked, and I interviewed somebody who worked in uh, the state-run antiquities market, uh, believed that saving uh, objects for the state um, was something uh, worth doing, that uh, that the state represented the people, and that, that was why um, this preservation was noteworthy. Uh, but I can see how this would be uh, something that is controversial uh, or would be controversial to this day. Great. So that question of how to understand what happens um, after this period and how um, uh, things transform today, right, is something that's covered in the conclusion. Now, we won't have time to talk substantively about the conclusion because we're actually, believe it, at the end or at the conclusion of our conversation or moving toward it. Um, But I want to just flag for listeners that in addition to the description of curation, right, in its multivalence that you indicated at the beginning of our conversation, um, which comes up in the conclusion, there's also a, a discussion about some of the most striking differences between between the exhibitionary culture of the Mao era and that of China today. Um, And listeners who are particularly interested in those transformations um, will find that not only um, um, kind of sprinkled throughout the chapters. We haven't talked about that, but that comes up in a lot of the chapters, right? Um, Like, what are some of these exhibits today? Like, what forms do they take? What's it like to go back to this Fangua Lane um, now? You know, what? um, But also, this is something that's treated here. Denise, is there anything in particular since um, this does come up throughout the book that you wanted to mention about this issue of um, striking differences or transformations between this period and today um, that you'd like to talk about before we conclude? Sure. Um, I I think I'd like to bring up a distinction that I make uh, at the beginning of the book. And and as you say, I, I try to introduce it throughout between two different modes of exhibitionary culture. One of them is to think about a socialist museum. So this, uh, these are exhibitions that um, relate a particular narrative. These are about projecting authority. Um, I say it's the exhibitionary culture of the state and power. So a very traditional revolutionary history museum might be one of these, or the Shanghai Museum as the guardian of antiquity would be another example. Um, and so this is one mode. The other mode is the new exhibition. And the new exhibition describes a uh, short-term, ad hoc, grassroots-level exhibition that's used to accompany a political campaign. And the social uh, education movement, class education exhibitions, and the Red Guard exhibitions are examples of this. Um, I think these are representative of the state and revolution. They teach people how to participate in a political campaign. So um, when people ask me to, to what degree is this exhibitionary culture still present in China today? I think for the most part, um, they are the exhibitions of the Socialist Museum of the State and Power. Um, the National Museum of China on Tiananmen Square is an example of this. The new exhibition, the political campaign exhibition, comes up much less frequently. Um, but I think when the 
when the state is targeting a particular um, enemy, let's say uh, corrupt officials, then these uh, uh, these exhibitions and their very techniques come back into being. So Denise, there's obviously a whole lot that we could talk about that we won't have time for. The book is extraordinarily rich. Is there anything in particular that we didn't cover, but that you'd like to mention for listeners who may not yet have had the opportunity to become readers? I think um, one thing that I'd like to highlight is uh, a question that I referred to earlier, which is the this question of Shanghai and um, how representative or uh, exceptional it is. And I think that um, the book is, it takes case studies from Shanghai, but the title is includes the words Mao's China. Um, so one of the bigger questions is, can these examples be used to represent all of China? And I think that for the first party Congress site and the Shanghai Museum, these are certainly uh, particular places, although they do represent genres that are um, that exist elsewhere. Right, the Art History Museum and the Revolutionary History Museum. The middle, um, the middle examples do reflect, and what I try to do in in the more detailed look at each chapter is to show how uh, exhibitions about modernization uh, happened elsewhere, or anti-superstition exhibitions happened elsewhere, and certainly the class education um, displays and the Red Guard exhibits happened all over China. Um, so I think it's it. It's something, um, it's useful to reflect that uh, these case studies come from Shanghai, but they reflect um, a much wider phenomenon across China. And now that the book is out, and congratulations on the book, what's next Thank for you? you? What are you working on now? I'm currently doing the research for what I uh, hope will become two books. Uh, one of them explores the uh, relationship between Hong Kong and China, a book called Cross-Border Relations. Um, and the other book looks at the reform era history of the city of Shenzhen, uh, this mega city, um, or originally a, a market town uh, that's become a, a mega city and a, a Chinese special economic zone. So I want to explore some of my original interests in urban history uh, by looking at its development. Awesome. Well, best of luck with that. Thanks for taking time away from that work to talk to me today. And congratulations. Um, it's really been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very much for joining us and come back and catch us again next time.